0: Hello and welcome to another episode of South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. Uh, My name is Karthik Nachipan. I'm a fellow here at the Institute and I work on, amongst other things, technology policy. And today it's my pleasure to invite Anirudh Berman, a fellow and associate research director uh, at Carnegie India, to the podcast to discuss Uh, recent developments uh, with respect to India's data protection framework, and what the changes that are being made there uh, could mean for India, for uh, India's digital trade, and for India's relations um, with Singapore. So Anirudh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Karthik. Pleasure to be here.
0: So... Just a few weeks ago, uh, the Joint Parliamentary Committee, which was reviewing the uh, latest version of the Data Protection Bill, um, submitted its recommendations of the bill to the Indian Parliament. Uh, now, this is the bill that uh, will eventually, once that, regulate data uh, in India, uh, and so how it's collected, used, stored, uh, and transferred. What's your assessment of the committee's recommendations uh, and what kind of a data policy framework will these changes, if enacted, bring about in India?
1: Sure, Kartik. So to answer that, let me just take a step back and go back two to three years because that's when a lot of this actually started. Uh, the Joint Parliamentary Committee is a parliamentary committee. Its report is... Very important, it's the first time members of parliament actually examine a legislation that is proposed by the government, but the recommendations are not binding on the government. So uh, just to put that right up there, the government is free to accept them, reject them, accept them in totality. They can come back with a completely new version of the bill based on the committee's recommendation or anything like that. But just to take a step back from it, this is a process that's been going on for the last two to three years. And the JPC's report is close to final uh, assessment of the bill, because after this, if the government brings another version of the bill, it will most likely be debated in parliament and passed. So the bill was initially prepared or a draft of this bill was first prepared by a committee that was appointed by the government, uh, by Justice Shri Krishna. He was a chairperson, a retired judge. And the committee proposed a draft data protection bill that was very similar in many respects to Europe's uh, general data protection regulation. It had provisions like notice and consent uh, for the collection of data. It gave a lot of rights to users for Uh, accessing data that's that's been collected by companies and businesses uh, created a bunch of obligations on companies who are using and analyzing this data. They had to maintain minimum standards on storage, privacy, safety, uh, do periodic impact assessments about the risks of collecting the data and so on. And there were penalties associated with this. And it had also proposed the data protection authority to monitor a lot of this. And uh, it would actually regulate the entire sphere of data privacy regulation within India. So it was quite an expansive framework that was prepared. And the this was the version that was then circulated in the public domain. The government sought public comments on it for over a year. And it made some changes. There were uh, some pretty critical modifications to that legislation that was initially proposed by the committee. Uh, A couple of those just to highlight the changes. One, there was a lot more leeway or powers of exemption given to the central government to actually exempt surveillance agencies and investigative agencies from the ambit of this bill. And this was something which was radically different between the committee's version and the government's version. Uh, The other was this new concept of non-personal data, because the initial version only looked at issues of privacy and personal data. This bill, the government's version, actually gave the central government the power to mandate uh, the collection of non-personal data as well. Uh, And it wasn't clear whether there would be any compensation provided for it, whether there would be any mitigating circumstances that would require this collection or and so on and so forth. So these are just two examples that were pretty significant changes. So this version of the bill then went to the GPC, And as these examples highlight, issues of privacy were also getting linked to issues of state surveillance, uh, issues of what you can actually do with data. So the state was also looking at the issue of data as a tool for economic Exploitation, right? That that was what the whole idea of non-personal data was. So the GPC, in some sense, actually takes this whole idea forward. So they are much more gung ho about the notion of state sovereignty and sovereign power over data. So, for example, the all the previous versions uh, proposed that Indian data be localized within India but the GPC actually goes a step further and says that it's essential for the Indian state to make sure data is protected and therefore localization should be done in order to uh, protect Indian consumers and that the Indian state is the best guarantor of this protection. And so this whole idea of the state as a sovereign power that needs to protect Indian consumers has become even stronger. Uh, There are similar other uh, tones that you can detect. So for example, they've said social media companies should now be registered in India. And not only that, if they're actually functioning as platforms rather than intermediaries, which is if they're actually publishing content rather than just being a platform for the publication of content, They they should not be given exemptions from liability that is generally accorded to intermediaries. So, the idea is that again, there should be far greater state control over platforms who are publishing content. Uh, similarly, non personal data, the committee is actually fully endorsed the view of the government that non personal data is a tool for economic exploitation, and the country would benefit if you have a framework for mandating access to non-personal data. So these are some of the big themes that are now coming out of the JPC report where you are not only seeing a focus on privacy, but also a lot more focus on economic issues, issues of state sovereignty in this digital economy. That's the broad thrust. Uh,
0: So there's a lot to unpack there. And I hope we can pick on some of those strands in this conversation. Uh, I want to go to one specific aspect which you mentioned, uh, data localization. And the initial uh, versions of the bill uh, did call for a strong dose of localization. Has that been softened in the JPC report or does, as you claim with the focus still on state sovereignty uh, and, and state power, has that been amplified in a way?
1: It's actually been amplified. So like I said, the GPC report is actually version three of the bill. Uh, Version one had, like you pointed out, a framework for data localization where there were three buckets of data, categories of data. Uh, There was personal data, sensitive personal data, and critical personal data. And the committee, the version one of the bill basically said that everything except normal personal data needs some form of localization. Uh, The second version, the government's version of the bill toned this down a little bit and said, you can actually have free transfer of sensitive personal data as well, provided there are certain safeguards like binding contractual agreements and uh, adequacy arrangements with other countries where you're actually taking this data to. So this is similar to what the European Union has under the GDPR. And the third bucket, critical personal data would have to be localized. And the problems there were mainly about how you would define critical personal data and what would actually fall within that bucket because that was a source of significant uncertainty. The committee has not toned this down, but what they have said is that even when you transfer data out, the central government has to have a role in making sure that that data is then not transferred to a third country or is brought back to India within a particular time. And that's an additional administrative compliance that all companies would have to bear. And the implication is pretty clear, which is that you cannot trust what private companies are doing and the central government is the best guarantor of this protection. So they've actually taken a far more uh, state-centric view of localization uh, than even version one,
0: if I might say so. Um, the In between these developments, there, as you mentioned, the government was also discussing how to regulate non-personal data, and there was another committee which came out with a Uh, a set of ideas on um, how the government should go about regulating uh, non-personal data. Can you give us some insight into first what does non-personal data mean and what it uh, constitutes and how this new report uh, or or what it does in terms of that, whether it kind of um, will eventually create a single space for data without distinctions between whether it's personal or non-personal.
1: Yeah, so the motivation for this comes from the perception that India is not benefiting adequately or as much as it potentially can from the personal data that is currently capable of being exploited in India. And that a lot of these benefits are actually accruing to foreign companies who are operating in India. So the idea is that, yes, consumers are definitely benefiting to some extent from the operation of a lot of companies who are mining Indian data, but probably we can do much better and there can also be higher benefits to producers and businesses from the use of this data. So in order to do that, the idea was if you can actually uh, disseminate non-personal data or make it easier to access non-personal data. Uh, there would be much higher chances for smaller industries, uh, smaller uh, companies, Indian firms, to actually exploit this data and to create services. So that's that's the broad implicit assumption behind creating this framework. Mm-hmm. And So they've basically said non-personal data is anything that is not personal data. So it can be anonymized data, it can be uh, anonymized traffic data, it can be weather information, any data sets that are anonymized and not personal fall into this bucket. And the idea is that this data will be capable of being mandated for public sharing So there'll be some kind of administrative setup which will make sure that if a certain database of non-personal data exists, companies who hold that data will be compelled to share it for uh, certain purposes and certain circumstances. And the idea is also therefore to create a market for the buying and selling of non-personal data. And as with most things, I think the problems are over the specifics for what purposes can you actually mandate this kind of uh, data collection or data sharing? How will the actual modalities take place? Uh, Will companies be compensated adequately? Are you talking only about raw data or are you also including data that companies actually invest resources in creating and developing? And do you also make make them subject to this kind of a regime and Then consequently, you have to think of the incentives. Why would actually firms create this data if if these data sets are then capable of being uh, mandated for data sharing? So those are the kinds of issues that have now cropped up in in the context of this non-personal data. And we haven't seen a full elaboration of how this would actually be implemented because again, remember, this was a government appointed committee that came out with the report, but the government itself has not taken an official position on what it would do with this, except for the single provision in the data protection bill. And that, like I pointed out, is very ambiguous in terms of compensation, uh, the actual mechanics of data sharing and so on. So that that's where we are on non-personal data now.
0: From a broader point of view, um, if the government is keen on leveraging and exploiting data, as you mentioned earlier, and is inclined to emphasize a form of data governance that expands uh, state control and power, then does it make sense to distinguish between personal and non-personal data? I think it still does
1: from a regulatory point of view, because the overarching rationale for data protection so far has been individual privacy Mm -hmm. and that's been a motivating factor that was that was the context in which the supreme court gave a judgment on privacy in india and it for the first time said there's a fundamental right to privacy under the constitution and it said you know we should have some kind of a regime for informational privacy and that was also the motivating factor or broader context in which this whole committee on data protection was created that wrote this law. And during that time, this whole debate on non-personal data was never in the picture. It it basically came about at a slightly later date when people started talking about things like data sovereignty, data nationalism, uh, the potential for benefiting from local data or Indian data and not letting you know, foreign companies, so to speak, get away with, uh, with all the benefits. So I think it does make sense to actually bifurcate that debate because the motivations are very different. And ideally, if you're looking at it from the point of view of privacy, we should be trying to at least say, look, one issue is still about data privacy regulation and we can talk about whether the bill is doing adequately on that front or not. But the other part is completely distinct. It's about economic exploitation. And that should not be mixed with this issue of privacy. Uh,
0: So if there's gonna be a regulation, there has to be a regulator. Uh, And um, the initial version of the bill called for, as you mentioned earlier, a data protection authority to be created and to manage uh, not just this framework, but also uh, data and, and how, Uh, the obligations of different kinds of actors, uh, including the government and private sector and citizens um, with respect to data. Uh, So where are we on the Data Protection Authority? Do these recommendations affect that agency in any way? And how quickly do you think such an agency can be up and running once the bill is passed?
1: Yeah, the bill does propose a Data Protection Authority. And I think this is again, inspired if not borrowed from a bunch of data protection legislation or regulation everywhere else. And the idea is to have a single regulator at the national level that would basically regulate data privacy issues across the economy. And this is a a daunting task because I don't think we have a regulator that has operated at this scale and scope in India before. Not only that, we've not had any prior experience of data protection regulation in an economy wide scale before this. We have banking regulators and securities markets regulators who regulate privacy issues in their own sectors, but that's a very narrow field compared to what this DPA is going to do. So we don't have that experience and we don't have 30, 40 years of jurisprudence on data regulation that a lot of other countries do. So this DPA is going to have a daunting task when it's going to be established. And it will, again, be a central government regulator. It's created as a independent agency. So it will be at arm's length from the government. There'll be an appointment process. And the JPC actually does clean up that appointment process and recommends changes to make it even more independent. Uh, So it focuses a lot on how the selection takes place and what the qualifications of the members ought to be and so on and so forth. Uh, But having said that, that doesn't really address the capacity challenges that this DPA will actually face. Uh, And once you go down the route of having a economy-wide data privacy legislation, I don't think there are too many choices about this. People have talked about different designs. So people have said, uh, you could have sectoral regulators do data protection regulation and let this DPA only regulate parts of the economy that are not currently regulated. Some people have talked about state level regulation. So to have separate DPAs in every state in India, Uh, but this seems to be the model. It's also inspired by a lot of other existing regulators in India. So I think, this is the most feasible model that we are going to go with. And I think the first few years of having this DPA will be absolutely critical to for it to understand what is its mandate, what are the areas it must prioritize for regulation, how do you actually signal your own effectiveness and your legitimacy in the market, how do you create awareness for uh, data protection issues within the entire economy, and so on and at the same time have the expertise and the nimbleness to keep up with innovation. India is a very rapidly growing data and digital market. So how do you actually stay on top of developments and figure out what are the new risks being created for consumers? It's going to be tough. So the first two, three years are going to be critical. The JPC has said there should be some transition time for this regulator to come. Uh, once the bill comes into force, once the bill becomes a law. And it's recommended, ideally, it should take around two years to actually set this whole thing up. And I think that's a sensible idea because you can do a lot of preparatory work in those two years, try to talk to industry, try to talk to consumer associations, and so on, and to figure out what are the key pain points, what are the main activities the DPA should be focusing on. So I think that's a good recommendation.
0: So all these changes in India are unfolding in a global data landscape that is also in flux. The European Union and China are in the midst of adopting new digital governance frameworks which cover data competition and other aspects. Uh, The United States is now uh, considering various ways of regulating big tech and possibly uh, data the initial PDP bill that you, uh, that which you also highlighted earlier bore resemblance to Europe's uh, the European Union's GDPR. Can you place this new updated bill in a global landscape and how it aligns with the other models of data governance that are also rising? And how will this, um, and how will, India's own framework affect how Indian firms are adhering to these other models of data governance uh, going forward?
1: It's a great question. I think if you look at the core components of the legislation, there are elements that are basically common across most regimes and the same happens to be true for India. So if you think about the idea of taking consumer consent, giving notice for the data you're collecting, taking permission, Uh, Having some kind of a purpose limitation on what you do with that data, uh, creating some kind of a security mechanism, having some consumer rights and obligations on companies to manage that data. I think those broad components are pretty similar. And I think even the language that reflects those obligations and rights is also pretty similar. And I think India fits in with that pretty pretty well uh the points of distinction are also going to be contentious because those are the places where India is both an important market but also an outlier so for example on data localization uh it is even though almost or more than 100 countries have some form of data localization either sectorally or economy or across the economy India is a large market and as a large digital market, what it does on data localization doesn't matter. Right? Uh, similarly, on non-personal data, if it can actually make some kind of a mechanism for non-personal data markets work, right? Uh, that might actually have implications for how the, some of the global frameworks emerge. Right? This is not to say that what India is proposing is something that's isolationist, because If you actually look at the frameworks on localization, they seem to operate or seem to suggest that they'll operate very similarly to how the GDPR works, which is if you have an agreement, if you have some kind of a safeguard, data flows should happen smoothly. It's just that there will be some level of compliance and administrative hassle that firms will have to deal with. And yes, there will be a bucket of data that will be subject to localization. So it's not not to say that data will have to be localized or all the data will have to be localized, but there is definitely an insertion of sovereign power into this whole free flow of data uh, kind of regime. And the idea is not to put a firm barrier today. The idea is to have the tools so that you can erect barriers down the line if you need to. Right? Uh, so I think that's the kind of structure that's being created where the government is basically saying, I need a data protection law where if I need to do something tomorrow, if I want to ban you know, apps from a particular country, uh, I have the legitimate tools and instruments under the domestic law to do that. And then I can go and negotiate in international forums because I already have that domestic framework with me. So I think that seems to be what is at play here. Uh, And I think how we go forward on these issues that are going to be contentious are going to be the most interesting part. So again, issues like localization, but also issues like exempting state agencies from uh, data protection laws. And I think these are going to be sticking points for a number of countries who want to enter into agreements with India. So I think. We should be focusing on the contentious issues, but the broad parameters, I think, of the debate, they're pretty
0: harmonious. Many firms in Singapore are expecting um, with anticipation how this regulatory process and the bill will eventually pan out, and what their obligations will be when transacting with companies in India and engaging in different uh, markets and industries. Should the uh, should Singaporean firms be worried um in terms of what their eventual burdens will be um, on data transfer and storage uh and can they can they transfer proprietary data that's collected through their applications and services back home with ease um, what's the future here?
1: Right, so I think the first thing to note is that this is still going to take some time. So even if we have a legislation in the next session of parliament, uh, it will take some time to be implemented. And in addition to that, we have seen a couple of news reports uh, in the past week hinting at the fact that some parts of this law might be rewritten completely. So that might mean further delays. And we discussed that the DPA might take about two years to, to actually set up and Only once the DPA comes into force do we have regulations that the DPA makes, which are actually going to prevent localization or implement localization laws and so on and so forth. So, uh, all of this is sometime during the the line. It's not going to happen in the next six months. So, that's the first point. Uh, But yes, eventually there will be some element of compliance and administrative burdens that will be put on all firms. And here, I think the biggest worry is not so much the actual content, but the uncertainty that the bill creates because it leaves a lot of questions open. So, what exactly is sensitive personal data and what is critical personal data? Um, Right. So, even when you have a law, even when you have a DPA, firms will keep looking to the DPA and the Indian government for answers to these questions. And the other point is also that once you have a bill, and once you have a law under DPA, there will be administrative hassles related to, how long can I keep this data out of India? Do I have to bring it back in? Do I have to delete that data? Can I keep it outside for six months, right? How much, how well does this data localization framework interact, for example, with international money laundering uh, prevention frameworks, right? If I have reporting requirements in the US or in Singapore, uh, how do localization laws actually work with that right if I'm supposed to keep that data according to US law Singapore law for six months but the Indian says i have to bring it back within 48 hours how do I actually design around that so I think those are the kinds of questions that will become important from a compliance point of view uh, rather than rather than worrying more
0: about the actual data flow the the dominant mode of figuring out these kinds of issues between countries today is the digital economy partnership agreements or depas uh, do you think india is ready or will be ready in the next few years to negotiate depas with countries like singapore that could cover issues like data
1: i think india is keen to do it we recently signed an agreement i think with uae that for the first time has a digital uh, agreement component to it. Uh, so there is at least some sign that the Indian government is willing to move ahead with it. But just to take a step back what happened in about two two to three years ago when the Osaka declaration came, uh, the Japanese introduced this idea of data free flow with trust. And India was the only or one of the major outliers and refused to endorse the concept and it basically said, we need some space for domestic policymaking before we go ahead and endorse these agreements. And the idea then was presumably to have a domestic legislation in place so that then you have the necessary framework internally to go and negotiate externally, right? Uh, the recent agreement shows some kind of a willingness to not wait for that to happen. And But again, I think, Indian policymakers will be much more confident about negotiating once we do have a domestic framework. So I think in the long run, having a data protection law is going to be crucial to see much more willingness from the Indian government to negotiate. But at the same time, we are seeing some hints that they might not keep waiting for
0: it to happen. Um, I want to end with two questions. Um, First, in terms of the bill, What's your expectation on what happens next uh, in terms of its passage and how and when it gets enacted?
1: So on that, I think the the answer is really uh, weird and uncertain because we thought the JPC report was going to be close to the final step to the passage of the legislation. And if not, All recommendations, but at least some of the more technical and workman-like recommendations of the GPC would go into the bill, and the bill would be accepted, and then move to debate in Parliament. But we have seen a couple of news reports, and again, these are just news reports we don't know for a fact, that the bill might be rewritten in some form or the other, which hints at the fact that the GPC report process was probably not enough for the government to finalize its thinking on the the legislation. So maybe there is some fresh thinking on some of the issues that are more contentious and the government might want to take some more time to to come back to parliament with a piece of legislation. Uh, Yeah, so the initial idea was there would be some kind of a bill that will go through parliament at least in the next session of parliament, but it doesn't seem so clear now. Uh,
0: And finally, we haven't talked about it much, even though we started off the conversation talking about it, Um, privacy, uh, which was supposed to be the kind of guiding light behind this whole regulatory um, exercise. But we've come far from that in terms of what we want to do with respect to data and how it should be managed and handled. Where does
1: this leave privacy in India? So yeah, so that's the ironic or the funny part of how this debate has progressed in India because the debate initially started with the issue of the use of Aadhaar or the biometric ID system in India. And the concern was that data collection using Aadhaar or uh, services that utilize Aadhaar would lead to the creation of data that would then be misused by the state. So this debate was really about individual privacy against the state. And that was how the Supreme Court judgment also got started and came out. Uh, The idea was, how do you have a data protection framework which guarantees you privacy against the state? Where we are now at is that we have a lot of compliance that private companies are going to have to bear, but the state has been let almost completely off the hook. So there are some limitations that it will definitely have to comply with it. That. And that's an improvement over what it what it is right now. But for the large part, when you're talking about uh, data collection by investigative agencies, surve- surveillance agencies, and so on, a lot of that has just been left completely unaccountable. Those agencies will have the power to continue doing whatever they're doing right now. And on other areas, you're actually seeing an expansion of the state. So you have now a powerful data protection regulator who is actually going to intrude into the, if you may want to call it the private workings of companies to oversee individual privacy, right? And that's going to create its own challenges, right? Uh, Then you're going to also see a lot of state power exercised on issues like non-personal data, right? Similarly on data localization. So we wanted privacy from the state, but we are actually getting a lot of expansion of state power in the process. That seems to be the most ironic part of how this entire process has planned out. And the JPC process actually expanded on it even further. Uh, So we'll have to now wait to see what the final version of the bill looks like.
0: Uh, Anirudh, thank you so much for joining us. That was a great Um, exposition on the range of developments that have been unfolding in India on the data protection front and what to expect going forward. And thank you all for listening to South Asia Chat, the podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore.
1: Thank you, Karthik.